we get into stressful situations and what we start to do is we start to think that um, we know the whole story, we get worse at listening to the other person, we, um, and we lose track of the idea, that's a sort of subtle idea, but I think that we understand is true, that, that the way the conversations really go well is if at some level or another you make the other person a partner in the conversation. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Hello, dear listener. This week on the podcast, I am excited to share my conversation with my friend Misha Globerman, who is a Toronto-based communication and negotiation facilitator. I really like talking with my friends on this podcast because we get to go deep fast because we have history together. We know each other. We have trust. And that's what Misha and I do. We start out talking about the pandemic, suffering, self-compassion, and our human aversion to feeling uncomfortable emotions. Then we dive into Misha's career trajectory from teaching improv to teaching people in organizations how to listen to each other better. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with Misha is that he is, quite frankly, a genius when it comes to navigating nuanced, complicated conversations, including negotiations over things like contracts, salary, pricing that occur in the business world all the time. Misha offers a number of concrete, actionable tips to improve your ability to have productive, meaningful, even delightful and connected conversations with colleagues and clients. So without further ado, here's me with my good friend, Misha. I hope you enjoy our chat. Um, well, Misha, why don't you start by saying who you are, and then we'll talk about just that we're both humans, and then, uh, and then we'll talk about whatever we want to talk about. I'm Misha Globerman. My name is Misha Globerman. I do a bunch of different work. But most of the work that I've done over the past few years has mostly been around uh, helping people communicate better in a variety of different ways. Uh, so that means um, uh, offering uh, training for people on communication skills. It means helping people have uh, important and tough conversations uh, generally in the workplace. Um, and also um, also helping people form more meaningful connections in, in gatherings, conferences, and things like that. That's a summary of like what I do. Yeah, and and but you before we we dive into the 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 content of your work and and start exploring that, I'm just curious how how are you doing on a on a human level these days? On a human level, I am finding the 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 a friend of mine has <laughs> my friend Doug. Every time I talk to him, he's like, you know, the fun part of the pandemic is over now, and I'm feeling that a little bit. Like, I feel yeah, like we're over here. We're in Toronto. We are um, going into winter time, and we're, we've gone into lockdown uh, recently. So it's challenging that stuff. I'm not loving it. I'm not loving it. it and and parts of it were have been really fun. Parts of it have been really interesting, and parts of the parts of the pandemic have really been, in terms of just my personal experience, have been like, wow, you'd think this is really hard, but it's actually kind of really interesting. But um, but this part, I'm I'm getting, I'm getting tired of. Yeah. And does lockdown mean no school or? They're keeping the schools open. So that's a good thing. They've kept, they've closed down basically everything except the schools, uh, which is important for your listeners might not know somehow. I have a little child. And so having him at school makes a really big difference. But he was home. He's, he was home for a while. They get sent back. He was in, had to self-isolate for a while, case of the school, those sorts of things. Right, right. Yeah, I, I remember I I took some. You may not know this, but I took some solace. You you hosted an event very early on in the pandemic, and um, I think like probably like sort of three weeks into to being locked down, your your response to the pandemic was to host a lot of virtual events, which I think yeah. is, was is kind of an interesting, um, just a revealing coping mechanism. Um, yeah. Your your sort of go to was was to try and form connection. Um, but you said something and, and I'll paraphrase it. You said, you know, b b before this thing came, like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know when I was going to die. I, I didn't know, you know, I would have friends and family that would suffer and, and, you know, those things are still all true. Like, I still don't know when I'm going to die. I'm still going to have friends and family that are going to suffer that, that I, I can't do anything, you know, I can't do anything about, uh, 
um, and for me, that moment was was a sort of um, you know not not an attempt to minimize suffering, but an attempt to really connect with it in on a, an an authentic way. Um, and I wonder what what of that attitude have you kind of have you have you carried with you? Oh, I've carried that with me a lot. I mean, I think a lot of well, there's two parts of it. I mean, so so one part of it was just focusing on what's the same rather than what's different. Right. So one part of it was just like people were sort of like, well, what's different? Oh, this time is so different. Everything's so different. And I think one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize was like, it's also the same. Like, it's also the same that like, we always live with the fact that like, you know, with, with, with this uncertainty, we always live with suffering. We always live with, 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 with death around the corner. We always live with all those things. And that's always the same. And so the emphases are different. I mean, not to minimize the ways in which it's different, but that that's the same. And then the other part of it, I guess, is that, uh, but there's a second theme that I think I'm hearing in what you're saying as you say it back to me, which is a theme of like normalizing just suffering and normalizing the idea that like things are hard. And that for me has been something that's been true, I think during the pandemic and thinking about that a lot, I think has been, uh, has been interesting. I taught a class on resilience recently, which was really fun. It was good. I think a lot of the things that I'm teaching are like, the things I'm doing are also the things I want. So I'm kind of like, oh, you know, early in the pandemic, it's like, oh, I want to like create connection for people, partly because I want connection. And then it was, I was really fortunate to get a chance to teach this class on resilience because I want to think about resilience right now. Um, and so a lot of the stuff on resilience that I was reading and that we were doing, and not that it just came up in that class, it's been there before, but is that really understanding the degree to which like when things go wrong that that's normal that when there's suffering that that's normal that when there's pain that that's normal that all those things are a normal part of life as opposed to like i think another way to go through life is sort of every time two things go wrong to sort of be outraged you know? right <laughs> to kind of be like what the hell everything's supposed to be perfect like why is something going wrong and to be like no no things things go wrong and things are wrong and it's hard and so there's a lot of um we did a lot of stuff on uh, like using a, these self-compassion exercises yeah. in that class. And a lot of that's just like saying to yourself, like, I forget what it is, but it's like, you know, this is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a normal part of life. You know, may I, may I, you know, what, I don't know what the language is, you know, may I, may I get through this? Okay. May I be, you know, like, so to, so to sort of also not pretend that suffering's not hard. It's suffering, you know, that pain's hard and suffering, pain's hard and suffering's hard, but that also that they're all normal and that you live through them and that you grow through them and all those kinds of things. Yeah, it's interesting. I I took a a mindful self-compassion class right at the beginning of the pandemic and the timing was was just kind of like a little bit coincidental, but you know, also like many people, I suddenly wasn't traveling and um the class was on Zoom and so it was, you know, an interesting experiment in in connecting with people, but it was a I think an eight session class on mindful self-compassion and one of the um i mean to 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 that point one of the things that that we did was i think twofold one just ex exactly like you were talking about just acknowledging when things were arising for us that were that were hard and acknowledging that noticing that um connecting it to a common humanity, you know, that there are, if, if, if I'm having this moment where I'm struggling with, you know, parenting or, or whatever it is, there are, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of people at this moment struggling with that same thing. And, yeah. and that's a really, that's an interesting technique, I think, because it can feel really isolating to be in struggle. Um, and then the, the, th the third part of the um the third part of that technique was just to connect with that the kind of moment of of suffering or challenge in a physical way too so like to rub your chest to like give yourself a hug and 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 just to to hold yourself in that in that suffering and and that that challenge and you know it's that's actually a technique now that I use sometimes with my coaching clients because sometimes things things come up that are are really hard and it's okay it's okay that they're hard there's nothing there's nothing anywhere that says that you know any of this stuff is supposed to be easy whether it's 
you know, work or parenting or relationships. It's like, no, we should, we should, we should expect it to be hard and hard doesn't mean bad. Yeah. I think that's a really big shift. I think that's a shift that for me has been a shift that I've been really interested in more and more in the past few years is like kind of a deeper, an increasingly deep understanding of that, a deeper, deeper understanding of the idea that hard doesn't mean bad and deeper understanding of, of some of those kinds of things. Yeah. And when you talk about that sort of presence with those things too, that yeah, part of it's about finding it in your body and part of it's also about like finding, you know, I mean, whatever, this is just all basically mindful stuff, but, but finding like what's going on now, as opposed to like, all the other things we do, like when we have bad feelings, we sort of do everything except feel the bad feeling. We sort of, we try to make the bad feeling go away. Like all, and other things which are all good, like they're all okay things to do. Like it's not terrible to make your bad feelings go away. It's probably a good thing to do. Or we like worry that the bad feeling's gonna get worse or we worry about what the bad feeling means in terms of other kinds of things. We do all these other, all these different things apart from actually just having the feelings, you know, projecting what's going to happen in the future because of this bad feeling, you know, scrambling to fix, scrambling to fix the cause of the bad feeling, worrying about, worrying about the feeling, all those kinds of things. And it is really helpful to be able to get past, to be able to get past all of those things. And that idea too, I think part of it too, that idea that lots of other people are feeling it, like partly it's about forming a sense of connection with others. I think that's part of it. And I think partly it's also about like, I think a big part is like normalizing it. Is that like, I think that we're so built to kind of be that when we have a bad feeling, we're like, oh, something's wrong. Like something's wrong, we have to start fixing it. And and part of the idea of lots of other people feels right. It's like, right, that's, it's not that something's wrong. No, you have a bad feeling, you know? There's a pandemic and you feel lonely, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 you know. Yeah. I, and, you know, one thing, one thing I, I'm curious what you think about this. One thing I have really wondered about is, is kind of where and when did that, that those aversions to bad feelings start? Because it, it, it does not, it does not feel like historically universal to, to me. Um, what I mean by that is, Part of it feels like a modern phenomenon. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about that. Like, I think, I think certainly it's true. Like, we live in a society that, like, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on, like, positivity in, like, North American society and a lot of emphasis on, like, the idea. And also a lot of emphasis on the idea that, like, your destiny is, like, in your control. Like, it's interesting to me, like, looking at stories from, like, uh, like, like, like classical, like, stories from antiquity. I mean, still our own culture, but like further back. And like in so many of the stories, it feels like the lesson of the story is like, shit's going to happen to you and you're not in control of it. Like totally. So many, that's like, that's like a normal moral where it's like everything in pop, American popular culture, the basic moral is like your destiny is in your control. Like those are actually contradictory messages. They're not just right. different values. It's like, but you know, so much of like our popular culture is like, yeah, you know, here's a story of someone who like worked hard to fight the odds and was successful. You know, that's like the kind like, so many stories or some variation of that, you know, whereas like antiquity is a lot of the stories. So like, here's someone who's worked hard and then like everything blew up anyhow. <laughs> the moral is you can't do anything about it. Right. Or like Odysseus, you know, Odysseus comes home and then like, right. Finds that his like wife has left him for someone else. Like after, yeah. you know, his, his decade long journey or whatever. Yeah. He did all the right things and things just went wrong. Like, ah, and, and that's, and that's the lesson. Like, it's not even, it's like, it's like, you know, you want stories to like drive home the lesson. Like no matter what you do, things just aren't going to be in your control. And we don't have that. That said, I also think there's something in us that's just like our um, evolved nervous systems as animals. Like, you know, that it makes a lot of sense to think like, I don't know, if you were building a creature and you wanted it to evolve and survive, what you would do is be like, you know, when something's wrong, you want it to, freak out and try to change things like that's actually a good that's not a bad trait so i think a lot so i think some of it's more em emphasized in our culture than maybe in other cultures but I, I sometimes i read stuff that makes it sound like it's like you know you know we can't you know we can't accept suffering because of our like you know contemporary western consumerist culture and i'm like i think we also can't survive you know tolerate suffering because we're meant to be intolerant of suffering i mean that's what I mean, meant by evolution, you know, and, and evolution doesn't have our best interests at heart. I don't. So, but but even that context, like I I think the di one of the differences is is you know it used to be that a suffering was pretty correlated to survival, and 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 b you know there was a kind of there was a a a um, 
contemporaneousness to the suffering. Like, you know, if you, if you saw a tiger, you, you like maybe didn't want to hang out where that tiger was. So you would avoid that uh, area. But I don't know that like, like now it'd be like, you see a tiger and you'd like perseverate over it for like months, like about like, you know, the, the sort of the fear of the future, the future tiger. And I think the, there's a way I which I, I think our suffering now is maybe it maybe serves as a stand-in for action because so much of our you know so much of our suffering is is tied to this greater system that we don't necessarily feel like we have the ability to change or or control. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I mean, obviously. I think it goes without saying that, like, yeah, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but you know, Chris, I don't know if you know this, but the environment in which we live is not the same as the environment that we were evolved for. Right. So, like, I mean, I think that that's like, you know, the central thing about a lot of what it is to be a human now is that, like, just how vastly different, how vastly different, and you know, and 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 also, again, it feels silly to say because I think we know this, but it's like, you know, evolution is not caught up. I mean, evol- you know, culture has changed a lot faster than evolution goes, right? So we have, so we have brains that are like basically evolved for people like what, you know, 50,000 years ago, like they're, they're evolved for like, you know, people living in like hunter-gatherer societies. And for those of us who aren't living in hunter-gatherer societies, it's like, right, we face a lot of different threats and a lot of different, yeah, all of those kinds of things. And just, the, I mean, just all the basic stuff where it's like, oh, the things, the things that go on in your body, like when, if you're like, you know, something goes wrong in a meeting at work, the things that go on in your body are literally meant to prepare you. I mean, we hear the phrase fight or flight and it's like a cliche, but, you, but it's really worth taking it apart. I don't know. They're literally meant to prepare you to physically flee from a life-threatening situation. Like that's what your body's actually doing. Like it's not, it's not metaphorically doing that. It's actually like being like, oh, I, I'm going to have to run quickly because someone's going to try to chase after me and eat me. Like that's what your body's doing. And it's like, that is so not relevant to, you know, like it would just be, would be really bad in a meeting to be like, oh, this is a bad situation. I wonder if I can out physically outrun right. the client. You know, like I need to be able to physically outrun him. That's the, and it's like, no, that's really not what you need to be able to do. But that's what your body's evolved to do, you know. And I don't know, it's interesting. It's hard to know what to do with it. Well, and and one of the ways that I think you engage with that is by, I mean, maybe, this is maybe a, an interesting way to bridge to talking about communication and, and mm-hmm. teaching people to communicate, because there's a sense in which, yes, we have these built in, you know, kind of responses and and yet we can do a better job of yeah. making it safe to share ideas, be, you know, being... Um, yeah, just creating the ability for a group to to connect in that way. And so I'm curious if you can, can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, a lot of what I do is, is help people communicate better. And a lot of what I understand myself to be doing when I help people communicate better is like bring consciousness to like, oh, what are the instincts that we have? What are the things that we do instinctively in those situations? And, and where do those instincts come from? And how do they serve us well in the actual, you know, how do they serve us well in the actual environments that we're in and how do they not serve us well in the actual environments that we're in? I mean, that's the, the marvelous thing that we can do as humans is like, we can also, I mean, which just ties in very much with those mindfulness practices is like, we can, we can see, you know, we can watch the stuff that's going on and we could be like, oh man, like I have this path, I have this instinctive, you know, I have all these instinctive things I do in these situations and some of these instinctive things serve me really well for my present needs and some of them serve me terribly and I can right. try to modify them and stuff. Um, so for sure. Yeah, we are not, we are not evolved to have like these, you know, co- the kinds of complicated nuanced conversations that we have with people in the contemporary world, I think aren't, you know, the main thing that we're evolved to do. Um, yeah, learning how to do that, how to do that. And, and the complicated, the complicated stuff we do around that is, is, I mean, I think helpful to people in making them, helping them have happier I mean, help having them, help them be more effective in their jobs, but for me, especially just helping them have happier and more fulfilling lives and be more fully realized people, which is kind of more what I care about, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I, actually, I'm curious, how, how did you get into, like, how did you start to do this? How did I get into this work? Yes. Oh, it was very circuitous <laughs> route. Of Naturally. A, it's like, like a 17-hour story, so I don't even know how. I mean, I... 
<laughs> I don't know, man. I did like. I just. I love the idea of of a seventeen hour story, and Let I me love tell the you idea everything. of. Right, totally. I'm very conscious. I have to say, I'm more conscious than I usually am in these kinds of interviews of the fact that this is a complete side thing, but I'll name it. Which is, I'm very conscious of the fact that, like, so so for listeners, Chris and I, like, we're we're friends. We talk. Chris, Chris, like, phones right. me up on the phone to chat on the phone, which he's literally the only person in the world who does that um, in, in in the in the contemporary world, and I I love that. And we so so we have an actual friendship, and one of the things that I'm uh, and we talk about stuff all the time. And one of the things I'm particularly conscious of in this is I'm like, I'm trying to figure out how to be of service to your listeners. And I don't know what that means. So I don't know if you have a, I feel like you actually just started to ask me a question about being of service to your listeners. And then I had sidetracked it, but I'm not sure if you have a sense of like what would be helpful to your listeners to talk about in this. Well, I am curious. I mean, not the 17 hour version, but the, the, the 1.7 minute version, what, um, yeah, I'm curious what the like just how you got into this space. So I'll tell you a couple of things. Here's one. This is the here's the childhood origin story. The childhood origin story is this, which is that like I remember being like a kid, like being in third grade and being like in the classroom and the teacher would say something and a kid would raise their hand and ask a question because they didn't understand. And the teacher would give an answer and the kid wouldn't understand what the answer was. And I just remember like time would like stop, like time would slow down. And I would be like, I see exactly what's going on here. Like I see what the teacher said and I understand what the kid didn't understand about what the teacher said. And I understand what the teacher didn't understand about what the kid didn't understand. About and I was just like, and I was just like, huh, <laughs> you know, here's something, something I'm good at, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. And so all these years later, that skill um, is a skill that I use a lot. Uh, in a lot of different contexts. So that's a sh that's there's the short answer. Do you want do you want more of the more of the in between steps, or do you want to think about that? What was the first time you went into some kind of team or organization and and you were like, hey, I teach this, and then people were were taught by you? Well, when I started actually teaching, well, by, by this, do you mean community? Because I've taught a lot of things. So I was a teacher for a long time. I taught improv for a long time. And that's a way of saying I teach this. Because when you're teaching improv, what you're teaching people is how to listen to each other. I mean, that's sort of how to, you know, how to collaborate and how to listen to each other. That's most of what you teach when you're teaching improv and most of what I was, specifically what I was interested in teaching improv. Um, the first time that I said to people like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to communicate better and maybe you should pay me some money for that was, I don't know, maybe a little over 10 years ago, I think. Um, but I started doing that not with um, organizations. I did it with general public. I did it with uh, right. close to the public. Um, so that was around that time. But it felt very fluid from like doing the other work. It felt, it felt like a large step not like a leap if that makes sense you know like there were like who i taught like the first people i taught were people who had already taken improv classes with me they're like well misha taught us how to you know do this improv stuff maybe he can also teach us how to get along better with our boss or whatever you know uh-huh and so now when when you do this with a team mm -hmm. i'm just imagining something in, in a workplace like you, you have a team of people let's say they're they're I mean, what, what is their, their presenting kind of issue? They're, they're struggling to communicate. They're struggling to solve a, a, a kind of big problem. It's different. It's different and it changes all the time. And I think it's something that I'm trying to figure out as a business practitioner. Again, I'm like, I'm thinking about who your audience is and I'm not sure what's interested in different people. But like as a business practitioner, what I'm trying to do is get better at um, thinking in a more complicated way about the relationship between the problem that they're having and the, and the tools that I have. Um, so for, so for quite a while, what their presenting problem was, was we would like some communication workshops that was the, and I would be like, great, I can solve that problem because I can give you some communication workshops. Um, right. And it worked. They'd be like, you did give us communication workshops. And I'd be like, ha ha. And then I think as I, um, make a move from, uh, functioning more, less like a training business and more like a consulting business it starts to become a bit more about being like, oh, how do I use those tools to actually help people solve the problems that they have? And one of the, one thing that I, that I think is a really, well, even, even that the phrase presenting problem, for, that captures what's, what's the important idea, which is that it seems to me in, in consulting, which is, that if which is that people don't really know what their problem is. That, that right. if, if, the people, if people could really express super clearly what their problem was, then they could solve it. Yeah. And that, and that the reality is that with clients that they don't know what the problem is. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine that really, really, really stuck in my head 
about things. And, and, and so for communication, very, very often, like a lot, a lot of times that people are stuck on some issue, some really concrete issue, like the really concrete issue is like, whatever, we're trying, you know, we have this product and it's been really successful uh, in Central America and we're trying to bring it to Europe, but it's not really working out. It might be that what they actually need is a communication workshop. <laughs> like it might be, you know, that what they need is there's a team of people who aren't communicating better, but they don't know that, you know. Right. Uh, that like, you know, and then they're like, something's not working, but we can't quite tell what it is, you know, and it's like, oh, right, you know, maybe what you need to do is get together some of the key decision makers and have some better conversations about that. And once you get them together, you're like, oh, right, you guys actually are really bad at talking about what happens when things go wrong. And so because of that, when things are going wrong, you're not able to solve this, you know, whatever. But they don't know that. Like, the conversation that I had that really stuck in my head was with a friend of mine who runs a company, and I was talking to him about it. And I was talking about that issue and I was like, he was like, yeah, you really want to find like a leadership team who like have a, they're just stuck on something and you're going to use your communication stuff to help them get unstuck. But they don't care about your communication skills. They don't care about the meetings. They care about like the particular issue they talk on. And, and I was like, oh, so I was like, so Tom, so, so what you're saying is that um, it's like, it's like, I'm, they want to build a staircase and I'm coming in and I'm like talking about hammers and nails and they just want to build a staircase and I should stop talking about hammers and nails. And Tom was like, dude, they don't even want a staircase. They're standing yeah. around on this ground floor. They're looking at the second floor. They don't know how to get there. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that like, that kind of really opened it up for me. Like, it's like, oh, right there. That's really different. <laughs> you know, like that people are just kind of stuck and they don't know how they're stuck and they don't know why they're stuck. And you've got a lot of tools and they're tools for getting people unstuck, but it's really, 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 really far from what they need. Um, and being able to think that way, I think, um, like for people, you know, that seems like a really interesting and useful shift in thinking to make. As part of my kind of professional development, I've been taking uh, this course through what is called the Gestalt International Study Center, which is this place on Cape Cod. Of course, I'm taking it virtually. Um, and the the idea of it's sort of Gestalt started as a form of psychotherapy and then kind of got started people started applying it to to teams and organizations and and to leadership teams in particular and the thing that is so interesting about it is that it is a technique that is i'll say exclusively focused on the context of something not the content of it right so it's it's exclusively focused on the context of something in that the sort of the, the the thing that people are trying to do is not the domain of of gestalt you're sort of like letting just in, in to, to build on your your metaphor it's like you know there's a group of people and they and they want to get to the second floor and the sort of the way a gestalt practitioner intervenes is just by noticing the way that they interact together noticing the way that they talk together and 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 that is the intervention, and it's really really fascinating. You're sort of injecting yourself into the system with an observation about what is happening with them now, and then as a group, they get the opportunity to to just see that and to decide what parts of it serve them and and what parts of it don't. What parts? What would be an example of some observations? That would be the sort of observations that a that a, that you would that one would make in that sort of intervention. Well, you could you could. Um, it's sort of all about the the group so you could see like oh do you do you do you guys notice how um how willing you are to share what you see with each other um but maybe they are less willing to to listen and engage with what other people share so so it's it's sort of seeing the kind of the the what what the language of Gestalt says that the well developed. So what comes really easily to the group, and and you know, seeing the value of that, and also not, um, you know, not wanting to discard that, but also seeing the ways that relying on that too much can 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 be a block for for them. Right. So being able, so, so you're kind of observing like the skills, the skills, they, the, the communication skills, the interaction skills that they do and don't. 
so, so I mean, you're observing everything. Like you're not being, you wouldn't be like, hey, I noticed that it, the sun is setting aside. Or you wouldn't be like, oh, I noticed that lunch is, is there, Yeah, so correct, like, correct. <laughs> Related to the group. You know. And a bit about how the group gets along with each other. So you might be like, would you be like, oh, I noticed that the men are talking a lot, the women aren't talking a lot. Would that be the kind yeah. of thing? As a, as a, as a, as an example. Yep, exactly. Um, and it doesn't even, it, it's, it's, it's anything behavioral. It doesn't have to be communication. Um, although I guess, I guess it is in the, in that, mostly in that context. Um, but you know, it could be here, here's, here's a, I was working with a, a group from a group of engineers from a, um, an oil company. And, you know, one of the things I noticed and shared with them was, was how good they were at talking in terms of the data that they saw. Um, and and you know all of the benefits that that gave them, and and also the ways that that could limit them, the ways that not sort of being able to to talk more expansively. Um, uh, and it was, I mean, it it was, it was, you know, it's such a soft, soft way of of intervening too. I mean, it's not, it's not. Um, it's done without judgment. Right, right. I'm not going to tell you, Anna, you're broken. Here's how you're broken. Here's how I'm going to fix you. Yeah, exactly. There's exactly. Anyway, that was, a, that was an aside, but it, 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 um, I think it just supports your, your point that it's not like your friend Tom said, like it's not necessarily, you know, the outcome doesn't even necessarily have to be you teach them to do things in a different way. You know, you can just part of part of the presence of of someone like you can just be to help them see what's what's happening and help them see the way that if they if they wanted to choose a different way of doing things, there are some options out there. Sure, sure. So I'd love to hear some concrete things that you teach people because I think that could actually be really kind of helpful and, and interesting. So, yeah. you know, you have you have a group that's stuck. You have a group that that, as you said, they, they may not even know that they're stuck around yeah. something with communication. Like what are what are some things you might you might share with them? What are some things you might guide them through some some skills that if they could pick up? I, I work a lot more. I should say that most of my work is in more with individuals than with teams. Like I work with a group of people, but the focus is more has been more on the individual skills. So I'm going to talk more about those individual skills, which might not be that different, but I want to name that. Um, I think a big part of it is uh, like a huge. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much. I think a huge part of it is I'll, I'll give the bigger picture thing and then I'll give them more sort of we can talk about like specific tactic ways to like sort of tactical things to do to instantiate it. The big thing that I really try to impress upon people, and this goes back to the thing we were saying about the sort of animal instincts and all that kind of stuff, is that, and the tension between like our intellectual minds and our animal, in, animal instincts. And the thing is that what most of us know intellectually with like our cortex, you know, with our cerebral cortex is that like, we understand that in the vast majority of important conversations that we have, we understand that um, it would serve us pretty well to try to take an approach where we're pretty collaborative with the other person, with to take an approach where um, we're, we, we understand that probably that to solve any complicated problem, there's going to be like some misunderstandings and stuff. And part of what that means is that like, we're going to have an understanding of the story that's imperfect. Um, to, to understand that that means like the other person has some stuff to contribute to the problem, that they're going to be happy if they feel that we work collaboratively with them, that we shouldn't turn it into a fight, that we're sometimes wrong, um, that we should probably be pretty open with information. And there's this cluster, there's a sort of picture of what we're like, where we're sort of these nice, open, collaborative people. Um, and we know that. Um, it's, and it's both who most of us aspire to be as humans. And it's also what most of us really intellectually believe is gonna get us better outcomes. That's the thing that our sort of recently evolved brain knows. Then the thing that happens to all of us, to every single human being in the world, I think, with, with greater or lesser frequency, is that when we get into situations where the stakes get high, um, that what we do is we like jettison that belief and these instincts start to kick in and these instincts with them bring, bring with them a set of feeling you know, somatic feelings and emotions and cognitions where we start to think like just think about the moment when you like lost your temper or like you kind of lost your shit in a meeting or whatever and you're like oh my god like at that moment it, I actually thought that like 
you know, if I slam the door, that's really going to make things better for me. Like, it's not just that you couldn't control yourself and you slam the door, but actually at that moment, you're actually having the cognition that like, oh, this is going to show them. Like now that well, I don't even, you know, they're going to respect me. If I slam the door, they're really going to respect me. Um, that's an extreme example. But what we normally do is we do much less extreme versions of that, which is that we get into stressful situations. And what we start to do is we start to think that um, we know the whole story. We get worse at listening to the other person. We... Um, and we lose track of the idea that's a sort of subtle idea, but I think that we understand is true that, that, and some of this, I think you understand right away and think of some of this you understand on, on further investigation, but is that the way that conversations really go well is if at some level or another, you make the other person a partner in the conversation. And that doesn't mean giving up on what you want. It doesn't mean giving up on the fact that you might want really different things, but at some level, if you go in and they're feeling like, you know, and you're like manipulating them, to get what you want and not thinking about them at all. It, it just doesn't go very well. And yet when we get stressed out, that's what we do. So we get stressed out. What we'd start to do is we do the opposite of all that. We start to think that we know the whole story. We start, we stop listening. We start behaving in ways that are very secretive, sometimes ways that are aggressive and almost invariably it, it backfires on us. Um, so that's the sort of big picture. So the, so, so when I teach the class increasingly, when I teach this stuff, what I sort of try to do, is give people some time to kind of wrap their heads around the idea. And for some people it comes very easily and for some people it doesn't come as easily, but to wrap their heads around the idea, which is, I know how to be, I know it's going to work for me, which is to be collaborative and open. I kind of know that that's going to work 90%, 90. And I think some people think it's, and it works more often than you think, but I think, I know it's going to work most of the time. And I also know that there are all these things in me that make me not be like that and it serves me poorly. And then the rest of the course is like how to operationalize that. Like what are some strategies to keep me from, keep me from doing that and keep me on that, to bring me onto that side where I'm kind of being collaborative and listen and open. While still in some cases, you know, being very focused on what I want and the differences between my needs and their needs, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think you've just, you've hit on something which I think is really important, which which is not necessarily intuitive, which is the idea that, in fact, I think there can be a bias, particularly amongst people who are very quantitative, people who are maybe, uh, you know, like um, aggressive high achievers, that this this kind of thing, you know, this is a, a sort of, it's this kind of hand wavy frou frou thing, and and if you do it, you're giving up some amount of of, of power. And I, I think the the truth that's really interesting is that you're going to get. I mean, in, in you're going to get to better outcomes, right? This is not like this is. It's a. It, it's not a zero sum game. Like you don't have to give up the things that you want to to communicate better. In fact, many times there are there's just kind of low hanging fruit out there that if you never say, Hey, this is what I want, then you'll, the other person won't know to give you that low hanging fruit. Like there's, there is this, the, the, you know, the, the pie is bigger than, than it often first appears, which I think is, is kind of what, what you sort of echoes what you said before about like, th this is, um, this really can work. Yeah. And some of the stuff I do is like just the, some of the stuff I did first was like just real like nuts and bolts negotiation stuff. So all the stuff that you're talking about is like, yeah, there's just an assumption. There's an assumption that many people go in with, which is the idea that like this, people assume like this is a zero sum game. My job is to get as much of the pie as possible. And if it's, if it's literally zero sum and some situations are, but really remarkably few. So I think one of the things is like much, 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 much fewer situations or zero sum games than we, than we are inclined to think. And, 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 and you think like, well, you know, there's this pie. And if it's, so if it's literally zero sum, it's like, wow, man, every crumb of pie that Chris gets is a crumb that I don't get. And the only way for me to get a crumb is to take a, Chris, a crumb away from Chris. And so we are actually antagonists in a fight. And if we're actually, say, playing a game, like if, you know, if we're playing, you know, if we're playing basketball and all I care about is the outcome of the basketball game, like it is as good to stop you from scoring a basket as it is for me to get a basket. Like it's, you know, there's no... There's no, you know, I was not like, oh, it was a great game because lots of baskets were scored. I mean, it's just winning and losing, right? Like we're, we're trying to, that's a weird analogy, but you know what I mean? Um, uh, uh, but the thing is very, 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 very few things are like that. And I think the thing in terms of sort of hard-nosed people is to get like, okay, first of all, the size of the pie is never fixed. And one thing I think that's helpful, sometimes people say like, oh, it seems all rosy to think like you can create value for everyone. I say, okay, if you're a pessimist, 
surely you understand we can destroy value. Like you and I could walk into a business deal and I could do some things in that that would make things much worse for both of us. Right. You know, so you can shrink the size of the pie. So at the very least, you think, well, we don't want to shrink the size of the pie. We don't want to, you know, uh, an example of shrinking the size of the pie is like, you know, I'm going to take you to court and have an expensive lawsuit that's going to be super expensive for both of us. And at the end of it, we are both going to have less money than we would have had had I just taken the crappy offer that you gave me or, you know, whatever, like, you know, we will shrink the pie. Now there might be other things I care about. I might care so much about pride that I'm willing to shrink the pie to do that. But I want to be thinking rationally about that. I don't want to be just like shrinking the pie because I'm like in some weird, you know, emotional fugue state where I'm just like trying to, and I think that's what we do. I think that we get, one of the things that we do with that stuff is that in those kinds of situations, we often get so stuck on trying to win and it's something that we do we play a game like this in the negotiation class that really illustrates this where you have teams play this these little games with each other and what you see is people and the games are built such that like if you really try to win what ends up happening is that you um you get less and the games are framed where it's like you're you say to people a thousand times you say what you guys are trying to do is you're running two companies what you're trying to do is make as much money as possible for your company. You don't care how the other company is doing. You just want to maximize profits for your company. You're, you're, you don't care about market position. You're just trying to maximize the number of profits for your company. People, without fail, try to beat the other company. And the game is built such that if you try to beat the other company, what it ends up doing is you make less money. And it's built so that that's pretty clear that that's what's going to happen. It's not like subtle. But people will basically like, just keep like, it's sort of like you can shoot yourself in, you know, you can shoot that other guy in the foot, but you got to shoot yourself in the foot too. People are like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> if I can put, if I can put two bullets in his foot and just one bullet in my foot, I will do it. And they just keep there, just keep shooting themselves in the foot, making themselves worse and worse off because we're so uh, focused on that zero sum mentality that we're trying so hard to win. Even it makes things much, much, much worse for us. And that's, we do that all the time. We do that all the time. And being able to get out of that's incredibly helpful. Uh, and hard. And so, yeah. So what are some of the, you know, what are your, a couple of your favorite tactics? I mean, playing games, I think is an interesting one. Yeah. Playing games is a way of learning. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it is like, um, I mean, so for negotiation stuff, there's a few things. One is like really, there's a, there's just like a process to do a negotiation. And so the worst way to do a negotiation or not the worst way, but I think the way that a lot of us, so here's how, here's how not to do a negotiation. The way to not do a negotiation is go in and say, I have an outcome in mind. I have, I have an outcome in mind and what I'm going to try to do is manipulate the conversation in such a way that we can get to that outcome. And that's what we often do. And that doesn't work super duper well. And um, the way I think to approach a negotiation would be to start off to say, listen, to try to structure it in a way where you say, to try to make it as collaborative as possible. And again, as possible is important. I mean, if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, working with a client, like I still, I want to get paid a lot and they might want to pay a little, like we have conflicting values, but it doesn't make us enemies. Like I'd like to get, you know, um, so we can work together on it. And so to try to make, to try to work together and, and, and then what you try, want to do there is to say, well, listen, and, and a real, a really good process is to start off and say, let's not try to start at the end. Let's start at the beginning. Let's not try to start at what, you know, the end result to say, Hey, listen, what I'd love to do is I have a conversation about what do we want here? So in a negotiation to say, what's really important to you? And to say, what I'd like to suggest is maybe we can have some conversations. We can talk about what's really important to you and what you really care about. We can talk about what's really important to me and what you really care about. What are your hopes? What are you hoping for? What would it look like if this went great? What would it look like if it went terribly? Because that's another kind of interest, right? Like, what are you, what are you afraid of? What are you hoping for? What, would, what, what has it been like? If, what have things like that been like if they've gone badly in the past? What would, you know, all those kinds of things. So you got a really big picture of what both parties are hoping for and any kinds of things. And then from there, say, once we've done that, then what we can do is then we can start to think about some possibilities to address those interests. Um, and begin to brainstorm those. But first we talk about the interests, then we talk about possibilities, and we do it in a really brainstorming. We're just like, I'm going to throw out some ideas. The fact that I throw out an idea doesn't mean that I'm going to commit to it. We're just going to explore them together. And then finally, after that, we'll start to think about what might be an arrangement that actually works for both of us. But you do that in a way that's exploratory, and that's open, and that's collaborative. And, and that's going to let you do much more of the kind of building of value that, that Chris, that you're talking about. So that's a really, so having, having it be that process is, I think, really helpful. And, and another part of it too is to keep in mind the relationship and to think about in all of it to understand the value of that relationship. And that's, I think, another thing where people really screw up that people, that in many, many areas of life, in our personal lives, also in our working lives, um, the relationships we have with people are incredibly valuable and important. And they're valuable and important to us in different ways. Like as humans, it's, you know, what we really, really, really 
care about. We care about connections with others and it's, you know, an important value for us. But then also like if, even if you're like a really, you know, if you are that super practical nuts and bolts business person, it's like, well, where money comes from is from people liking and trusting you from having business, you know, good business relationships, which might be very different from those. But we, um, we forget about that. So one example of that is often that sort of hard nose, like be like that idea, I'm gonna to try to get whatever I can in this negotiation, I'm gonna to try to win this negotiation. You wanna think like at what cost of the relationship is that gonna be? So, you know, you might think like, oh, you know, I'm gonna do business with the person and I'm really gonna like get every single nickel out of them and I'm gonna, you know. Um, and in the near term, that might serve you well, but in the long term, like you think I'm gonna win in this negotiation with this customer. If you feel like you won a negotiation with a customer, they're going to feel like they lost. Right. And is that the relationship you want to have with your customer? Where your customer, hey, how is it, how is it doing business with Chris? It was amazing. We negotiated a contract and he really beat the crap out of me. He totally won. Right. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm not never going to do business with them again. So understanding that. So very often, for instance, in a negotiation, part of it is to name things like the relationship to say, hey, this is our first contract together. I want to work things out because I'd like for us to do business together in the future. A really common thing that, that I'll try to figure out is to be like, you know, let's try to arrange, come up with an arrangement that, that really serves both of our needs. And also that feels really fair to both of us, but that's something yeah. that's important to me. And so that's becomes a shared interest. So even something like focusing on price, which can feel like a kind of um, antagonistic or zero something can become kind of shared to say, well, what's important is that we both feel at the end of the day that the price is fair. That becomes a shared interest and we can work together toward that. One of the things that, that I've started doing in my, um, as I negotiate, consulting contracts with people is just share with them a price that would really delight me. Like, yeah, this is, this is what I would like to ask for. Like if, if um, like if that were the fee for, for this work, then I would just feel really, really delighted. Um, and it's just interesting when you put things in those terms, like people, people can say yes or, or they can say no. Um, but, but then you kind of give them a, a, a starting point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And depending on the relationship that you have with a person, that might be a totally reasonable, you know. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that as I have matured in my business and in my approach to my business, realizing just more and more that like the, 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 the ability to have the ability for me to show up and be vulnerable is, is an important part of the way that, that I, can do my work. And so, you know, having that, that, that starts, that starts when we start figuring out what the work is and when we start talking about it and when we start doing the contracting process. Um, yeah. Rather than feeling like I have to show up and like know, know the answer to everything. What does it mean for you to be vulnerable? Like what's an example of that for you? Well, um, it means, I mean, for me, I think a big part of it is being willing to, to say, I don't know. And, and really being willing to rest in the in the not knowing at the same time recognizing that that my value doesn't come from knowing an answer my value comes from um, you know ha having some guesses um, noticing things you know being like the intervening we were talking about before mm -hmm. um, and, and being able to guide groups to make better decisions and to, and to see things that, that they don't, that they don't necessarily see yet. And I'm assuming when you come in, you might not even know the answers about how to do that. Is that right? That, that is, um, I, I would say, I, I don't know if it's going to work, but I know, I know what I'll, what I'll start out trying. Right. I think one of the things for me is like to try to come in, like be, to know less and less coming in and to know, and to, and I don't mean that like in some like weird Zen way. Like, I mean like to come in, not with a preconceived notion about what, so, what, so one thing that happens to me a lot, is like, you know, coming to the client, they'll be like, well, we have this problem. How, you know, what would you suggest as a process to fix this problem in our first half hour call? And like, and so the first thing is like, well, let's, let's spend a half day answering. Like, I don't know the answer to that question. Like let's spend a half day answer, like, answering that question becomes the first, first question to answer. So the first question is like, let's get it, like just figuring out, like, let's get a clearer sense of what, what, what the scope of the problem is, which will probably even change, but at least we can get a starting point. And then let's get a clear sense of like, you know, 
who needs to talk about it and what sort of time frame. And like, there's a lot to know even before we can begin to think about how to how to answer those questions. And I think one of the things for us in that stuff, and and for me, I think that's the when you talk about vulnerability, is like that's the like not knowing it and figuring it out. Like that's the work. Yes. Like I think I think for me one thing I think one thing that that echoes for me is like for me one of the things that keeps changing for me is like understanding which part of it is like the work. So like for a long time what would happen for me is people would I I would run a lot of conferences for people and people would come in and they want me to run a conference and I would run the conference. The conferences I run are these very non the unconferences or open space conferences they're sort of very non-hierarchical decentralized. And one of the things that would happen is that very often the client would come in and they'd ask me to do that and then they would sort of start to they'd hire me, but then they'd kind of push back or they'd struggle and they'd push against it. And, and for a long time, I would sort of, for a while I was sort of annoyed. Like I was like, like, why are they hiring me to do this? Like, why are they being such a pain in the ass? Like I wish, you know, like, and then I was like, oh, this is actually my job. Like, this is the work, like the work, like running the conference is easy. Like what's hard is dealing with the fact that what happens every time, like I should stop being surprised. Like what happens every time or, or half the time is the client hires me to do this thing and then having hired me to do this thing, they then sort of don't want to do the thing. And so it's like, oh right, that's my job. Like the work is dealing with their resistances and dealing with their confusions and dealing with, and it's similar that kind of goes all the way back to the stuff we were talking about earlier about like the pain. Like it's like, it normalizes it. Like, so at the very beginning of the conversation, we were like, oh, you know, you have pain and you think like, oh, I shouldn't be having pain. If only this pain would go away. Like that. And then you reframe it and you're like, no, no, this pain is, this is part of, this is life. Like it's not just an unnecessary, like this, you know, an unnecessary impediment in life or something like this is, what I, what I have to do right now. And in a similar kind of way with the work that it's like, oh, all the things that I don't know or all the things that the client doesn't know or all the things that the client resists on, like all of that is the work. Yes. And and I think for me now, part of it is like, you know, a thing that I would start to feel as a client would talk to me, like we have this problem, what are we going to do about it? And I think this is what you're kind of describing. And I would have this anxiety of like, oh, Jesus, I don't know. Like I'm supposed to be a consultant. I don't know. And be like, oh, right, that's all of it's the work. Like not knowing is the work. Right. And being able to say that you don't know is the work. And what that means is, right, I don't know what to do about it. So what we need to do is we need to work together to figure out. So not only do I not, 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 not know the answer, I don't know how to solve the problem yet. Like, like what I'm going to do is, I, so, so you say, what's the answer? You say, I don't know the answer, but I can help you solve the problem. And they say, well, how are you going to help me solve the problem? You say, well, you know what? I don't know that either yet either. Right. That's harder. That's harder to say. But that might be the case too. I don't know that either. So we have to figure that out. And then sometimes I think, are you the person? Can you help us solve the problem? I think even think about that, you know what? I don't really know that either. So how about let's work together for a little bit and what we can figure out at the end, of, let's do a bit of work at the front where we'll figure out how might you solve the problem? Am I the person who can help you? That's the work. That's the work that we have ahead of us. Do you want to do that? Do you want to do that work together? And, and, and part of your work too is having that anxiety and having that fear and having that, that's part of the work too. That's what makes it a hard job. That's yeah, scary. It's scary to show up and say, "Be like, hi, I'm an expert. I'm, exp I'm an expensive expert. I think you're an expensive expert. I think I'm an expensive expert too." You say, "Hi, I'm an expensive expert, and <laughs> I don't know. Not only do I not know the answer to your problem, I don't even know how we're going to solve your problem." <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's less. There's and there's and also you don't want to be to, you don't want to be like this. Like you know, what you can say is you. I mean, the, you also don't want to be like um, this sort of humble monk or whatever. You have to be like, Listen, but let me tell you, I've dealt with a hundred other people where I came in at the beginning, we didn't know how to solve their, I didn't know what the answer was, and I didn't know how to solve the problem, and we solved their problem. So like, this isn't, this doesn't mean it's not gonna work, you know, but you know, we have to, we have to live with that. Well, and I, I think that, you know, there is, I've noticed in, in, in the corporate world, which is not surprising, because I think this is true of, of the world more broadly, but, Often I get asked a question that's of the form like, hey, have you seen a problem like this before? How did, you know, how did that organization solve it? And for a long time, I felt a pressure, pressure to give like a, an answer to that. And, yeah. and what I have, what I have realized was that I can both give an answer to that and at the same time, talk about how unimportant that answer is. Why is it unimportant? Why do you think? Because I, I think it's unimportant because, you know, so, so organization A, you know, they have a big problem they're working with. I'm working with a team there 
and they're like, hey, have you seen this solved it at other organizations? Like, yeah, in fact, I just worked with a similar problem at like, I'm, I'm just going to choose Microsoft because they're, they're a client. Like I just, have a lot I of just, problems. <laughs> I just helped Microsoft solve, solve a similar problem. And I can tell you about that, but the truth is you guys aren't Microsoft and like all of the, all of the, the sort of the things that make you great at your job and also have the consequence of creating this challenging situation, you know, your, your, you know, I, I go back to this thing, like your superpowers are also your, your, your neuroses, your superpowers are also your weakness. So, you know, your ability organization a to be really data driven, you know, that's, that's great. And yet it limits you in, in, in this way. And that's not the same, even though the problem on the surface might look the same from another client or another industry or another organization, the whole point is that you have to solve the problem by kind of co-creating a solution that's specific to your context. And so, so the, the, the value of being told what to do or to even told what somebody else has done is, is pretty minimal at the, at the end of the day it compared with being um, supported in your journey to ask questions and to, and to figure out how you might, how you might solve this in your specific context. That, that's, that's, I guess what I've come, come down to. That makes sense. I guess one thing I wonder when I hear that question is with a lot of, one of the things that I think a lot about a lot with that issue of like transparency and curiosity and communication is like being really clear about why different questions are asked. And so on, on my side, when I ask questions, one of my favorite phrases, here's a, a good communication, like a one-off communication. Tip. One of my favorite phrases in communication is the reason I ask is, mm. I think that's super cool. When you ask a question that a lot of the time, it's really not clear why you're asking that question. And it can do all sorts of weird things to the communication. But you say, hey, let me, let me ask you this. And the reason I ask is, well, you can say it. There's the flip side of that, which is when someone asks the question to be like, I wonder why you're at, why is to find out why they're asking that question. And that question that you give of like, Hey, have, what have you, what have you done with a similar organization before? What, what, how have you solved that problem? I can think of some different reasons. I can think of at least two big reasons why someone would ask that question. One reason I could ask that question is because they want to know the solution right now. But another reason I can think they ask the question is because they want to know if you can help them. Mm. So another way I can think to respond to that question might be to say, I wonder, I'm curious why you're asking me that is because you're trying to figure out whether I'm able to help you. And if that's the case, there might be a better way to answer that question. Yeah, totally. Than to, than to give the example of the, you know, it's, it sounds to, you know, it sounds to me like you're not sure if I'm, if I, if I'm the right guy to help you or, or if I'll be able to help you. Is that right? And that's, and one of the things that's nice about that is that's, that feels like, again, that's like a beautiful example to me of like that sort of transparency and collaboration. It feels like a perfect example in a sales situation that I, it's something I, I aspire to do and I don't always succeed in. But one thing that's useful to remember when you're talking to a client in initial call is that they're trying to decide whether or not they want to work with you in, in many cases. And very often what we do is we, no one names that, which seems to me to be a funny thing to do if we're trying to be collaborative and transparent. We, we understand that that's what's happening, but we somehow feel that in the name of like etiquette, we shouldn't say that out loud. And it seems funny because it seems like it'd be helpful to say that out loud. And also it would model the way that I want to work. So, so one way to have that conversation is say, we're having this conversation, we're doing this funny dance where we're trying to decide if you want to work with me and if I want to work with you, but we're all not naming that that's the funny dance that we're doing. But another thing that I, that I aspire to do is to be like, you know, how are you guys feeling in terms of whether you want to work with me? What, what sort of information would you need to make that decision? How can I, how can I help you with that decision? I, I would like to, I would, I, I can tell you from what I've heard right now, I'd like to work with you. I'm, I'm feeling enthusiastic. I, I also understand that if I were in your position, I'm, there might be more information I would need. Is there more that you need from me? How are you, how are you going to make this decision? Uh, what, what can I do to help you? You know, like, so to talk about that, to sort of not, not shy away from the, the slightly difficult. And that's part of it. Like a big part of the transparency is like, oh, we shy away from things that are difficult. And so it's, right. it's slightly difficult to name in that conversation. Oh, what's happening here is that you're evaluating me. And also what's happening is that I'm evaluating you maybe to a greater or lesser degree, depending on how I do my business. Um, what's happening is we're evaluating each other and that's, uncomfortable and you might you might reject me and you're not sure now if you want to work with me and you're and so to like put all that out and to be able to talk about that so I guess part of me for me is I'm going to ask that question one thing to say is to say are you trying to figure out 
are you trying to figure out if, if I can help you? And then talk about, you know, and, and you might still answer their question. I mean, you know. Right, totally. Totally. Yeah, this the, the example I was thinking of was in a context where we were where we were already working together and and there was just sort of there's like a, a hunger for a kind of definitiveness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And even there you could which I mean, could, yeah, which I, exactly which could also be supported in your in your in your in And your that feels very very compatible with a gestalt with a gestalt thing kind of yes. thing too where it's like like oh, you know, one of the things I see in this conversation is I'm getting the sense that there's a real rush to get to to get the answers, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say that in a way that's like less critical because that's obviously quite, you know, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how you make it less critical. I feel like I think there's something feels sneaky because I think the way I would do it, which I think is wrong, is to be like, I see you guys are really good at getting to solutions quickly, you know, and sometimes it feels like that could be a problem. But I feel like that's like a way that doesn't feel neutral at all. That feels like it's just like sneakily critical. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, I would never want a group. I, I would never want a group to get rid of their ability to to solve problems, um, right? So there's, I mean, there there is, I I think, and that's and that's what you know, that's what the work is in 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 Gestalt and kind of it, it's it's this it's really figuring out how to embody this kind of fundamentally optimistic stance that that suggests that whatever people are doing, they're they're whatever a group is doing or whatever an individual is doing in a coaching context, you know, is is fundamentally adaptive for them. And so there's an interesting um yeah, there's just there's an interesting element to that. I'm I'm curious as we as we come to a close, what um what 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 parting thoughts do you have, or or as is there anything you want to share that I didn't I didn't ask about? I'm not sure what parting thoughts I have. I'm interested. I. It's really nice. It's a, such a pleasure to talk to you. I also feel like well, one thing I feel like we didn't. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I guess we have described it. I was like, I don't feel like we described our relationship to the audience, which we have described to the audience what our relationship is. I guess, well, I guess I've said it many times. I mean, we're friends. I really enjoy talking to you a lot. It's we are friends. I just want to, I want to support you in that, Misha. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> I wasn't like, supportive why does Misha keep saying I, that he's Chris's I, friend and Chris just kind of <laughs> stares into space weirdly when he says that? <laughs> we are friends. And I think, you know what? I think that um, it's funny because I think that what we just did was we spent an hour sort of demonstrating our our relationship in this sense yeah. yeah and it's funny to think about i mean not to get too i'm now thinking about like the, the, the gestalt thing it's funny to think about like how this conversation was similar to a conversation we would just be having if we talked on the phone and how it was different yes. it was definitely in some ways similar and in some ways different but i i mean i would i would submit i mean there, there is you know the 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 podcast is slightly more directed than our phone call, but I would submit that that we really could have exactly this conversation on the phone. I mean, I think we would be because I, I I really could at, call you up and be like, "Hey, Misha, how, like, tell me about how do you teach? Like, what do you teach? How do you teach this communication stuff?" Sure, sure. And you'd be like, "Well," and then you 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 know you you talk about it. Um, yeah. And, and just, I think the thing, just to circle back, the thing that, that um, I think both delights and surprises and, and sometimes, um, sometimes uh, annoys you, Misha, although maybe, maybe <laughs> that's just projecting, is that I really will just call Misha randomly on the phone. Like we don't have like an appointment. I'll just call him. Oh. And, um, and each time <laughs> it doesn't always work, but. And for the, the thing I want to name for listeners too, is I feel that's actually like how our friendship came to be in some ways too which, yeah. I, which I really appreciate it so it's not just like, like now the fact that you call me out of the blue I'm like yeah, yeah that's what Chris does like that's really nice but like the first two or three times it's like we had only met like we'd met like a couple of times like I think we'd had a drink once and like the phone rang and I was like ah it's that guy it wasn't like it's Chris it was that's that guy Chris <laughs> you know? and I was like wow that is I really no, I really loved it. It made me really happy. It's it's a really nice. It's a very it's a very friendly and warm gesture to make. I think to just call somebody up in that way. So I really liked it. And I, and I also happen to like talking on the phone, but I do like I do like planning. So I'm always so audience. I'm always like texting Chris. I'm like, how are you at like five tomorrow? And Chris is like, how do I know, Misha? I'm just in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
<laughs> I'm like, I'll have my assistant talk to your talk to your assistant and schedule a time. And he's like, I will call you when the whim moves me to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, Misha, uh, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, and we'll 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 talk soon when 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 the whim strikes us. <laughs> Great to see you, Chris. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com/giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.